This is an ABC podcast. In the house my guest today grew up in, there was stained glass above the front door that said Stanley in honour of the 19th century explorer Henry Morton Stanley. The house next door was called Livingston, named after David Livingston, the missionary that Stanley went searching for along the Nile. And these stained glass tributes to the great British explorers and empire builders continued on down the rest of the street. This was in Barking, a town just east of London, part of England's working-class heartland. And the little boy who grew up in that house was named Stephen. He was destined to join the factory, or, if he was lucky, get a trade, like the other kids around him. But punk and politics changed the trajectory of Stephen's life. He switched his name to Billy and headed off on some grand adventures of his own. Billy Bragg has been making albums now for 40 years and he's been on tour in Australia to celebrate. Hi, Billy. Hi, sir. Tell me about that house you grew up in. What did it look like? Oh, it's a lovely house. It's like a, a, a standard terrace house built around the the first years of the 20th century. It was small, but, it, you know, there was just enough room. There was two large bedrooms upstairs and a box room, which I ended up making my own. When I was born, uh, it didn't have uh, a bathroom. They plumbed in a bathroom when I was born. And when I was growing up, we didn't have an indoor toilet. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have a phone. We didn't have a car. And it sounds like terrible, like I grew up in a log cabin, but actually it wasn't that uncommon down our street, you know. If anyone needed to um, urgently get any information to a neighbour, there was a friend next door who had a phone, you could give them a information, they would ring your neighbour. And entertainment mostly came listening to the radio with my grandmother during the day, and uh, she kind of taught me to, to read just before I went to school. So I had a, I had a relatively happy upbringing. Did you have any idea who Stanley was, this name? No, it's not. Front door? I mean, Stan, I had an Uncle Stanley, so <laughs> it kind of made, you know, made sense to me the house might have a name and the name might be Stanley, but obviously when you look next door and it's Livingston, and I think next door to that was Melbourne was there as well, and, and the one right at the end was Park, and that was next to the Park Gates. Now, whether that was because it was next to the park or because it was named after Mungo Park, it was also an African explorer, I never did get to the bottom of that. Franklin was the fifth one. There was five houses. So th- those all had had names, and they did look great. And my nephew replaced the front door uh, when he inherited the house. When my mother passed away. She left the house to my brother because he still lives in the borough and he's got three lads and they need somewhere to live. So she left him the house and he replaced the front door, which has the, the lights in it and everything, and I asked him to keep it for me. And uh, shamefully, I haven't picked it up, so it's probably <laughs> still your reminder. in his shed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were most people doing in Barking for work when you were a kid? Almost everybody's dad worked at, either at the car factory, the Ford Motor Company at Dagenham, which was one of the uh, biggest motor factories in, in Europe at the time. When I was at school, it was employing 40,000 people. Some of the mums worked there as well. I mean, they worked, you know, making uh, seat covers. I had an auntie who worked in the canteen. Or people's dads worked for one of the ancillary companies that were supplying parts to the car factory. My dad worked for a time for a company that made uh, testers, whatever they were. I don't know what they are. They <laughs> something did something they that you tested. put, yeah, something with uh, uh, crocodile clips that you put on a car. That's all I can remember. 
But basically, my father was a warehouseman. That was his job. Every, whoever he worked for, he was a warehouseman. So do you remember looking at those factories as you wandered around your, your neighbourhood? Like, did they dominate the landscape? No, really. Barking's on the north bank of the River Thames and the car factory, for obvious reasons, is on the Thames. And the town is separated from uh, the, the river and the marshland where the factory was built by the main arterial road, the A13, which runs from central London all the way to uh, South End. And that A13 runs along the uh, what they call London Gravel, which was the edge of the marshland when the Thames wasn't uh, embankment. It, when it used to flood massively, you know, and people during the prehistoric times, people lived out in these places on, uh, you know, uh, walkways that were stuck up in the marsh. They found, you know, the, the, the remains of these and, and, and stuff out there. So really, in fact, you could grow up in Barking and not even know you were on the river because it was separated by so much industrialisation. When um, Sir Francis Chichester sailed round the world in 67, he came back to be knighted at Greenwich by the Queen and he sailed past Barking Creek. And my dad took me and my brother Dana to see him sail past because he was so famous, this guy, old guy, had single-handedly sailed round the world. But to see him, to get to the bank of the river, we had to climb through a hole in the fence. So it's kind of like it wasn't. It wasn't as if we grew up in about in a borough that was connected in that way to the industrial nature of being on the river. But it was. It, it dominated my uh, childhood and it dominated the economy of the town. Sadly, now the car factory only employs one tenth of that number, four thousand people, and they're not even making cars anymore. Your dad was in that generation that came of age during the Second World War. Was he old enough to serve, Billy? He was, yeah. He was 15 when war broke out. And initially, he, because I think he was in the Boy Scouts, he was involved in taking uh, messages between the air raid precaution stations after there'd been a bombing, if they knocked out the phone lines. He had a list of ARP stations that he still, he still had when he passed away in 1976. I found it among his stuff. And he was, uh, he was called up in 1942 and he joined a tank regiment. He joined the, the 43rd Royal Tank Regiment. And although he was in, you know, during the war, he was mostly stationed in the UK. He was in, involved in the training of other tank crews in amphibious landings. He did a lot of work on tanks that could swim, Sherman tanks that could swim, and eventually ended up working on a top-secret uh, tank, which was a modified Grant M3, which had a 13 million candlewatt light on it which had been developed for illuminating battlefields in Europe. But it was so top secret that nobody knew it was there. It never got used. And in the end, um, when the war ended in Europe, shortly thereafter, literally within a week, he sailed for India with his regiment to prepare for the invasion of Japanese-held Malaya in early 1946. And while they were sitting in Hyderabad waiting for the tanks to turn up, the Americans dropped a big one and the war ended. And the British government decided in its mistaken enthusiasm to uh, partition India in le less than a couple of years. Um, my father was uh, kept in India with his regiment and they took part in trying to, um, basically trying to stop the uh, inter-religious violence that was happening, terrible, terrible riots in places like Calcutta uh, between uh, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, and having a tank with a great big light on it, which is what they got, was very helpful in the dark streets, the back streets of places like Delhi and Calcutta. So he, although he served in the Second World War, he never saw combat, and I, I think he was very happy about that. I never heard him once complain the fact that he'd never get to fire a shot in anger. 
Was that the first time he would have been out of your pocket of England? I think it was, yeah. It was the only time. He, he'd been until he, he met my mum and we went, went on some school journeys when I was a kid. So, But he left a real uh, appreciation of other cultures on him. He talked a lot. He was very evocative, you know. On the way here, actually, um, we were flying over the Indian subcontinent and I just noticed on the map that we were flying near uh, Agra where my father was stationed for a while when he was there and I sort of pushed up the skylight. It was dark and just saw the lights of Agra and I thought, well, that's probably the closest I'm ever going to get to what the old man experienced. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of... It was something that um, defined his life, that experience uh, of uh, serving in the Second World War. Were your mum's family from Barking as well? Not originally, no. My mum's family were from further in the East End. My mum grew up um, in Stepney around Cable Street and her father was the son of Italian immigrants who came to London in the, uh, around the turn of the century, the 20th century, and they had a fruit and veg store in Cable Street. Um, my mum's dad was, uh, uh, by trade, he worked on a, as a furrier, but then he retrained as a spot welder and got a job at Ford's and that, that allowed him to get a house in Dagenham, which is... Uh, the, the borough, that was actually was part of Barking Parish then, but there was this huge housing estate built in the 20s and 30s called Beckentry Heath, which was the, at the time the biggest housing uh, project in Europe. And my, my mum moved there with her family uh, just before the war broke out. And how did your mum and dad meet? My mum and dad met shortly after my dad came home from India. They met at a roller skating rink in, uh, in Wood Green. In, yeah, in, uh, in, uh, in London, near, near, uh, near where we live. And my mum just said my dad was skating so on his roller skates so gracefully that she kind of fell in love with him. And they, and they kind of enjoyed... The thing they enjoyed most uh, socially, my mum and dad, was ballroom dancing. They loved that. Every Saturday night they'd be out at some social somewhere, which was great for me because it allowed me and my mates to come around and play music. <laughs> so, you know... Have you inherited that grace on the skates or the dance room floor? No. I'm afraid <laughs> not. I do, I do, you know, I do occasionally... Uh, you know, sort of like uh, trip the light, fantastic. But I got a shout once for Strictly, and I was like, "No, I'd really make a fool of myself." Uh, if my mum had found out that I turned down Strictly, <laughs> she would be so so disappointed. That was that would just be her idea of heaven. Me on Strictly come dancing. You could have done a routine in in skates, pushed oh, it somewhere else. Dear, oh dear. So you grew up in this really industrial place, Billy, with you know factories and mm. houses and. And did you get to spend much time out of the city in the, in the countryside? As I did. I was very fortunate in that my mum's elder sister married a farmer and they had a, a dairy farm in Warwickshire and that's where we went every summer. That's really what our summer holidays were. And we go up there for quite a while, you know, we go up there for a couple of weeks and often it coincided with the gathering of the harvest. So my dad would help drive a tractor so he'd be carting the bales and I would go out with my cousins. I had four cousins up there. And uh, the two youngest boys were respectively a year and another year younger than me. And then the sister was a couple of years older than me. The eldest brother was a, you know, he was a, a grown-up by the time we were kids. He was much older, so I didn't really knock around with him. But my younger cousins, they used to, um, they used to put us in the field behind the, uh, the combine. And you have a thing back then, it was a bit more complicated, there was a thing that made bales. But the bales weren't the big bales you see now. They were kind of like... They were like sort of like four foot long and about 18 inches high and bind with two bits of twine. So you, as a kid, you could lift them up on your knee and we had to stack them, two, four, six, and then some a tractor would come and pick them up and put them up and, yeah. So that's what we did. We'd go out in the fields. But the, the maddest thing of all is at the end of it, when they cleared the field and it was just stubble, they would give us 
a can of gasoline and a box of matches <laughs> and get us to burn off the stubble. Can you imagine it? I mean, it was the maddest thing. I mean, the first problem we had Hell was trying to... a lot of fun, though, I yeah. imagine, as I mean, a kid. I, was, I would think I was probably 12 and I was the oldest. So we would, once it gets going, it's a bit... And Uncle Don, the last thing he would say to you, don't set the hedge on fire. So the only way you can stop it getting the hedge is to get into the edge of it and hit it with your shirt, right, to beat it back. So the wind changes and that, that funny smell, that's your eyebrows singed off. It was... I think back to the things we did and it was the best, best time I... I sometimes go there in my dreams to the farm. It's changed quite a bit. Like my, my cousin Donald still lives there. They no longer have... Well, he doesn't really run it as a farm now. They got rid of the herd. It was, just didn't make sense anymore. But he still lives in that old farmhouse. And whenever I go back there, I'm, I'm straight back in that place again uh, because it was just the, the most wonderful part of my childhood. And when holidays were over, what, what was school like? Pretty average. I wasn't a great scholar. I'm not very good at exams, you know. I did manage to get one O-level, which was English language, which I took that six months before the rest of my O-levels when I was just turned 16, must have been at the end of 73. And I passed that with an A+. And I was quite pleased about that because I thought, if I'm going to be a singer-songwriter, probably the only qualification I need is English language. But when the summer came and all the other exams came in, I unfortunately was madly in love with this girl from Eastbury, which is another school, and I, I kind of just blew my entire exams one after the other, much to the disappointment of my parents. But fortunately, the guitar that my father promised me if I passed my exams, he'd already bought me. So... He had to make good on that. He had already done that, and thank <laughs> God he had. So what was it expected that kids like you would do after, after leaving oh, generally, school? Generally, basically, um, when I was 11, I failed 11+, plus. like I said, I'm not good at exams. I failed 11+, plus, which meant I then went to what we call secondary school. And where I lived, the secondary schools were all technical, so they would be training you or educating you to work in a car factory. So there'd be, you know, metal work would be important, engineering, mathematics those kind of things, so you could get a job in the car factory. And uh, once a year, from about the age of 13, the careers master would come and t every year and take us to Fords and we would have a tour of the main body plant where, you know, a press the size of a, of a you know, a, a, a large truck would come out of the ceiling, bang, onto the sheet of metal and make it into the side of a car door, bang. I mean, it's like Hades in there. It was like, <laughs> my Christ. And then... <laughs> And then afterwards, they would, you know, they'd sit you down and ask you what particular thing you fancy doing at Fords. And when I said, actually, I really don't fancy it. I don't fancy working at Fords. The careers master actually said to me, well, you've got three choices then, Bragg, the Army, the Navy and the Air Force. And he gave me the brochures, you know, to join up to those. That was how, that was how far it went. So I had to come up with a plan to escape from that fate. And I wasn't good at boxing and I couldn't uh, play football. So music really was my only option. What music was there in your house when you were growing up? Not a lot. Um, much as they enjoyed dancing, my parents didn't have a record player, so mostly the radio. But when I was 11, they uh, had the genius idea of buying me a reel-to-reel, -reel, big old reel-to-reel -reel tape machine, because I think they figured it was cheaper to buy me reel-to-reel -reel tapes and let me tape stuff off the radio than it was to keep buying me records every week. But I soon discovered that some of my friends had elder sisters who had brilliant LP collections. So I started making excuses to go around to see them and, and very soon had all of Simon Garfunkel's albums up to, well, all of them really, up to Bridge, Bridge Over Troubled Water and quite a few uh, Motown compilations, Motown Chartbuster albums. And they were the, the kind of staple of my uh, musical involvement until uh, I got a job in a 
a Saturday job in um, a hardware store that had a record shop in the basement. Hardware store with a record shop combo. Yeah, yeah well, it's kind of like um, the old man owns the, the hardware store and the son wants a business, but he doesn't want to go into hardware, so he, he fix it, fixes the basement up and opens a record store. And that began, eventually the record store became more uh, profitable than the hardware store. But I couldn't get, I wasn't hip enough to get a job in a record store. You were selling nails. Instead. Yeah, I was selling nails, showing people how to use power drills and helping people choose their wallpaper. Why they would say to a 13-year-old <laughs> boy with no O-levels, do you think this would look good in our living room? I don't know. As if I had some sort of, you know, you know mystic ability to tell people how to, you know, in the big old books of Vimura wallpaper they used to have. I don't know if they still have them, but, yeah, I did spend a lot of time. The smell of PVA, those kind, all those glues... Gets me straight back there. And what album was the, the first one you bought? Do you remember? I do, yeah, I do. It was Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits. I was obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel. I really was. There was just something about Paul Simon's songwriting, the sound of their records. The first song that ever made me, moved me, you know, that I could put it on and change my mood was The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. I listened to music, I liked it, I enjoyed it, but that was the first song that actually had a, a, a mood-altering effect on me and I realised that music could do this and that intangible sensibility that you get from some songs, the songs that articulate something you can't put into words, I started to seek those songs out. So your dad had got you this guitar a bit, um, a bit too early for the graduation gift, but he handed it on anyway. Who taught you to play? The Kid Next Door. In I'd Livingston. been right, yeah. The, the kid next door um, in in uh, Livingston, yeah, yeah. Wiggy's name was, and uh, he was about two years younger than me, but a lot smarter, and he still is. And uh, I've been writing songs, but not with any music, just writing the words and keeping the tune in my head, and trying to learn to play guitar, but getting nowhere. Um, and I heard him playing through the wall, and I went in to see him, and he showed me the three chords necessary to play almost all of Bob Dylan's songs. I was kind of into Bob Dylan by that time. I'd sort of graduated on from Simon Garfunkel. And that was it. Off we went, because he was into Rod Stewart, and Rod Stewart had a propensity to cover Bob Dylan tunes. You know, One Too Many Mornings he covered uh, a few of those songs. So Wiggy was kind of clued in a bit to Dylan. Uh, and so the two of us, we kind of started knocking around, and it ended up a mate ran the corner we also went to school with, both to junior school and to secondary school, played drums. So we started coming around, and once we got the three of us, we were pretty solid bond for, you know, for the next four or five years. What were you writing about at that age? Well, I was knocking, you know, I was trying to knock off Bob Dylan songs, knock off Rolling Stone songs. Um, I was writing about... Basically, I got my politics from music, so I always thought music should be about something other than I'm great, you're shit, you like my socks, <laughs> to paraphrase Oasis. Um, so I, I was writing those kind of songs. I was trying to... I mean, you know, nobody just starts writing songs. You, you start by looking at other people's songs and trying to suss out how they're put together. And, and even if you have to use their tune and write your lyrics to fit their tune. It's still a creative process, and it's not a bad way to do it because if it's a tune that you really love, you already understand the the metre of that song. You understand how the words, syllables are going to fit. So it's not, you know, it's a really good way to, to learn to write songs. Take your favourite song and, and rewrite it in a like, way that you it says something to you. Like writing a sonnet or something, if you've got the form of the thing. Then exactly. You've got to it's the, yeah, fit it's the, words the to you it. know, you don't just pick up songwriting, but if you're using someone else's template... You can explore how that works, you know, and you can get a sensibility from that. 
Things were changing in your family, Billy. Your dad, Dennis, was diagnosed with cancer when you were 17. Do you remember who told you how that I conversation I do, yeah. Went? I remember the day we went to the hospital. I've, I've been in France. I've decided to quit my job and hitchhike around France for the summer of uh, 1975. And when I got back, uh, my dad was going into hospital for an operation on his lungs and it was then that they discovered that he had uh, terminal cancer. And I remember being going to the hospital with my mum and, and uh, she getting called back to talk to the doctor and then sort of driving us home in a very, very emotional state and leaving me and my brother at home and going to see her friend. And that was sort of the beginning of it. Um, and it was a really tough time because hard though it is to believe, in this day and age the hospital told us that we shouldn't talk to him about it. And because we didn't know any better, um, we, uh, we took their advice. I mean, I suppose it was a coping mechanism that was was used back then you know the the sort of stoical brit you know they'd been through the war they'd seen death they'd dealt with loss but i know it, it really uh it really destroyed my mum it really did it, it and and i you know i think of all the things i might have talked to my dad about perhaps if we'd have had those conversations uh, but um we never did you did later write a beautiful song about your dad, Tank Park Salute. Was that a song you always knew that you'd write one day? No, it just popped out one day. It popped out. I was writing a song about something else and a line came out that said, uh, I closed my eyes and when I looked, your name was in the memorial book. Now, my dad's name is in the memorial book at the cemetery where his uh, ashes were uh, deposited. And every year on that day, the memorial book is open on the page and me and mum my brother would always go on that day and go and look in the memorial book so i realized where i was suddenly i could feel the crunchy gravel of the the uh, city of london crematorium and cemetery under my feet and i thought to myself well am i going to go down this path because this is like this must be 1989 1990 i'm a 33 i've never ever spoken to anybody about this apart from my mum not even my brother if i write this song I'm going to have to start talking to people, absolute strangers. I have to start talking to them about this. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Let me write this song and see what happens. So I wrote it and I played it to Cara on my keyboard player, just played it to her. I told her the piano part, explained where I wanted the piano part to go. And at the end of it, she said, it's about your dad, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it is, kid, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, she gets it. So it probably will work. And I just have to be, I just have to steal myself to uh, to start performing it. And it's it's been really cathartic because when people get in touch with me to say that the song helped them to come to terms with the loss of someone they loved, it's not necessarily their father, it can be anyone, I can say to them, you know, mate, it had the same effect on me. It did that for me. So I totally understand where you're coming from. To be 18 and have your father die, did it feel like that was the end of your childhood, like it kind of put a marker between kid you and adult you? It did. It did. I collected all the things up in my uh, in my little box room with the toys and my annuals and my school uniform and all those stuff that was still hanging around. I put them in a big old chest, my Aunt Anna, a big metal chest that belonged to my Aunt Anna, who was my, my great aunt, my dad's aunt, and put it away in the back of the cupboard and took a deep breath turned around and then punk rock happened and that that was the the sort of confirmation that the world is never going to be the same again not just my father dying obviously that was a huge part of it but punk was there almost it was like a bus that come along and I got on it you know instead of standing there at the bus stop thinking what am I doing 
the number 62 to punk rock, came round the corner, everyone's singing The Clash, The Jam, The Pistols, and they're like, I put my arm out, the bus stopped, and I got on. And I look back now and I think how fortunate I was to have that because it, it, it did... It was the end of Stephen Bragg, really. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Billy, tell me about this bus called Punk Rock. What was your first realisation that this was something really different or something really exciting that was going to be a, a scene that you could work? A mate had a uh, a reel-to-reel tape machine of the Dam's first album and he brought it around, he had a, he had the tape and he put it on and me and Wiggy were absolutely convinced he'd recorded it at the wrong speed. <laughs> we're like, no, this can't be right. It can't be. Can but we read a lot of interesting stuff about it. Living in, it seems, may seem strange to people in Australia, but living in East London, although we were only about, you know, uh, 15 miles away from where punk was really happening in the, in the you know, Labrick Grove area and West End and around at Chelsea, we might as well have been in Brisbane for all the connection we had. We were reading about it, but we weren't really hearing it. You know, I think the first time I heard the Pistols was being late 76 when I tuned into John Peel late night on the BBC to hear a session by a folk group called the High Level Ranters. And in that context, I mean, God bless Peel for putting the Ranters on. No-one else was playing the Ranters and no-one else was playing the Pistols. But we didn't really trust it. There was something a bit studenty about it we were worried about. But then a band came through that really connected with where our heads were at the time. That summer of 76, we'd been hanging around at my, my friend's house listening to the early Who records, the early Stones records and uh, early uh, Kinks, you know, their first couple of LPs. And they had a kind of a, uh, a, a talk cutting edge to them. And then the Feel Goods, Dr Feel Good, we really was kind of into what they were doing. They were kind of like the British Ramones, you know, they'd gone back to that stark clipped energy that they had. And then we heard the jam. And the jam, it seemed to me, were kids just like us. They were from a, a suburb of London, you know, from Woking in the, in the southwest, other side of town. They wore suit and tie on stage, and I had to wear a suit and tie to work. It started Wiggy. So we kind of connected with that. But they had an incredible energy. I remember buying In The City when it first came out, the first jam single. And we went to see him in a, in a boozer in, um, called the Nashville, at the other end of the district line where, from where we live in West Kensington. And the place was actually ram-packed and they, they did an amazing thing. They walked through the audience to the stage. Now, that was absolutely unheard of from anybody who was a, in any sense of rock performer, never mind a rock star. And then they were doing a gig at the uh, Rainbow Theatre with The Clash, which was The Clash, the White Right Tour. So we went along to see that and we saw The Clash and that was it really because The Clash clearly were doing all the things we liked about the Rolling Stones, but they were our age. And that was such a revelation. That was such a... A legitimization of what we were doing and and that's where we imbibed the true spirit of punk rock which is do it yourself don't wait for someone to come and ask you to be in a band go and do it and and i still work to that 
You don't need permission. You just need the material to make whatever it is you want to make. Uh, that's really what punk was all about, and that's, as I say, still drives me along. And The Clash had that debt to black music, which was obviously something you and Wiggy were, were yeah. listening to as well. Very much so, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why we never connected with prog rock was it seemed the more proggy it got, the less uh, it owed to uh, African-American roots music. And we were really into I mean, we were hugely into the Stones. And also around that time, uh, reggae, Bob Marley in the mid-70s was really huge. We listened to a lot of what Strummer called UK pop reggae. So all that was in it as well, you know, the idea. And then that was synonymous with the politicisation of what I did with Rock Against Racism. So you and, and Wiggy and your other mates are fired up by punk and you've, you've got this band together. But instead of heading to London, you headed to Undor if I'm saying that correctly. It's interestingly, isn't it, how you say that? Yeah, how how you say that? O-U-N-D-L-E. When we first saw an advert for a studio, a residential studio in East Northamptonshire, in this place spelled O-U-N-D-L-E, we had to ring them up. We couldn't work out how to say it. Oundle, they say. Oundle. Like pound. Why Oundle and not Chelsea? We were never going to be cool enough for Chelsea. The circuit where we lived was all the, the... beginnings of the new wave of British heavy metal. It was all bands like Def Leppard and uh, Iron Maiden. They were the bands that were playing the circuit where we lived and and came from it. I mean, it was a great... For them, it was a, a great circuit. But, no, we were going to do that. So we just wanted to go on holiday somewhere where we could play music all night and get drunk and stay up and enjoy ourselves. So we went... We saw this advert in the back of the Melody Maker where they had loads of classified and we... we took a couple of weeks off work and went up there and never really come home. What, what did the locals make of you Oh, well, fortunately, there was a far, it was a farmhouse miles and miles and miles away from everybody, so nobody had any idea that we were up there. And the locals all thought we were pop stars from London, so that was even better. <laughs> we were like, well, yeah, when we went down to pub, just because we had London accents, they thought we must be rock stars. So that was the beginning of our... <laughs> uh, the thing about the people who ran it, um, Bruno Lachlan and his, his partner, Jackie Mackay, they were the first people who ever took us seriously as musicians. You ended up staying, though, in the in the countryside and, and taking a share house together, a, yeah. a, a terrace. What was the sort of hygiene level of that terrace, <laughs> Billy? Not good. We called it Wobbling Heights because it was in, in this uh, narrow street in, in the town that was built in the, in the uh, 19th century. And although it was a narrow street, it was the main arterial road between the A1 and the M1. So all the heavy traffic crossing... To the, from the M1 to the A1 and vice versa would come through this street. And at the night, in the middle of the night, the place used to shake. And it was one up, one down and one in the middle. And um, after a while, people in the town realised if they were drunk and couldn't get home, they could come and sleep on our sofa. So it was a bit of a transient place. But it was ideal for being in a band because we were massive in that town. Massive We were giants. Door. We were like, <laughs> look at them. They're so, you know, get away. And the... the um, the height of our fame was we got raided by the drug squad. They broke the front door open and come in and everything. Oh, we didn't have no drugs. We didn't hardly have any aspirin. We had no money. <laughs> we had much we could do buy beer. Eventually, though, this uh, heady life all got too much and you headed back south to your mum's place in Barking. Not much was happening with the band. You were 22. You're thinking, I'm washed up. What office did you walk past one day on the Acton High Road? On the Acton High Road, yeah. Well, Wiggy, bless him, got me a bit of work uh, with a mate of his, Artex and some ceilings. And that involved me getting all the way over to West London where Wiggy lived in Acton and then walking to the gaff. And every day I walked past the Army Careers Information Centre and my mind went back to that careers master at Ford's. And I thought to myself, 
What I really need is a, a way to press the eject button on my previous existence. It's all come to pot. Punk has come to nothing. All those things The Clash told me about changing the world, they weren't true. It didn't really happen. And here I am, a band split up. I've got no prospects, I've got no qualifications, and I'm just drifting, and I just really need to, to do something to just shake me up. So I went in and joined a tank regiment. Was your dad's service part of that decision, particularly tank regiment, do you think? Not at the time, but subsequently I think it was a big thing. I think probably I was looking for something to measure myself uh, against him with, so that was that was kind of... Uh, that was kind of in there, but it wasn't, it wasn't the real impulse. The real impulse was not to be that guy in the corner in the pub who used to be in a punk band. I couldn't face that. I just couldn't face it. How fit were you when you joined up? Not really. I wasn't very fit at all. They had to send me to Sutton Coalfield to get, get fit, which was which is a lot of fun because it was a load of other geezers who weren't fit. So we were like these total misfits and they were making us run through these assault courses that nearly killed us. I think I almost didn't broke my ankle uh, playing some stupid touch rugby game with them. But it was... It was really invigorating, and once once I got through the once I got to to the right fitness level, and they sent me up to Carrick, ah, uh, I was surprisingly good at it. To Why? The what do you think made you good at it? Working class lads who don't fit anywhere. That the army in those days was a great sponge. If you couldn't if you couldn't get on at school, if you couldn't get on at work, you could go into the army, and the army would take you in whether you could read or write. They'd teach you to read and write. So it was a lot. The army was a lot of brawny working-class lads who, you know, a lot of them had just left school. But I was a bit older, so I was a bit more sus. So I had that little couple of years edge on them and I was a bit more clued in to how it worked. So, and I was very fortunate in that the lads that I shared a room with who were my crew for the intake were smart cookies as well. We, I mean, we walked the best crew. I mean, it's a nine-week basic training. I'd say by week six, we'd won already. And the rest of it was just... Psh. Walk through it. Um, uh, but at the end, we went on the last big exercise. And um, the night attack where I, I was in charge of one of the platoons, my platoon was the only platoon to reach the rendezvous. Everyone else got lost. And they shouldn't have done because we wrecked it during the light. It's stupid. I don't know why they got lost. But we wrecked it during the light and they all got lost. So when we got back, the sergeant said, well, they're going to make you best recruit for that, Bragg. And that was a problem for me because I'd already decided I was going to leave the army. So did you, did you fess up to him? Mm, straight away, yeah, because they make me best recruit. Because basically, when I got up there, one of the other reasons I wanted to do it, Sarah, was because I just wanted to get rid of this stupid idea I could be a songwriter. That seemed to be, after punk come to nothing, that seemed to be a juvenile thing, a trivial thing. But when I got up there, there was so much stuff going on, I was just sparking my imagination all the time. I was making notes all the time. So I thought to myself, well, you know what? Maybe I should just go back and give it one more go. Unfortunately... Uh, the British Army being a volunteer army, after the end of basic training, you can buy yourself out. It's £175. And they don't give you your wages during basic training so that when you when you uh, pass out, you can go home and buy everyone a drink. You get a big... <laughs> get a watch in your hand to take home and show off. So, um, yeah, I spent mine uh, buying myself out because they said when the first people left in the first week or two, they said, look, if you've got any qualms, this isn't the army, what we've seen so far, wait till the end of the course... The, the second lieutenant said, and come and see me on the last day of the course and say you want to leave and I'll sign you out without any questions. And more, that's more or less what I did. And give him his due, he said to me, Bragg, you're the only person with any brains in this unit. You know, I really didn't like him, but I got great pleasure in the fact that he was a general's son 
and he hated the army, but he was having to do this. He really hated it. You could tell in everything he said and everything he did. And, and the one moment I got one up on him, the rest of the time, he put me in jail at one point for being cheeky. The one thing I got up on him was I checked out and he, he's still in Hotel still California. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, your head was sparking with ideas. You couldn't put uh, a waste to this idea that what you were meant to be doing was writing songs. And so once you'd bought your way out, you started gigging around, busking and playing clubs as a singer-songwriter, but with an electric guitar, not an acoustic one. Was that so you wouldn't be mistaken for a, a folk singer? Or yeah, I mean, that would, really there was no space for a solo electric guitar person at the time. You either was a, a singer-songwriter. I mean, this... This is um, early 80s. Singer-songwriter, Joan Armour trading sort of style. Nothing wrong with that. I could easily do that. But I still had the fire of punk in me. So I had to kind of force my way into, into gigs and play loud and angry. Chop and clang is what we call it, uh, my, my classic guitar style. But in order to do that, I couldn't just go and be Billy Bragg. I had to get a name that implied that I might possibly be a synthesizer duo with a wacky haircut. So I went out under the name of Spy versus Spy. <laughs> did you always feel comfortable on stage as a solo performer? I did, yeah. I liked, I liked the edginess of it. You know, I think probably I joined the army to prove something about myself, but I went solo to prove something about myself as well. What's the scariest thing you can do? What's the thing you can get the most adrenaline from? What's the most ridiculous way you can force this issue one way or the other. It's your last go. So fix your bayonet and charge. And that's kind of what I was doing. I was just fixing my head down. These are my songs. I'm right in your face, you know. And I got this, uh, I got this residency, a dreadful boozer, just south of Blackwall Tunnel in a, like an industrial estate. And it was called The Tunnel. The club was called The Tunnel. And they put me on every Thursday night opening for whoever played. So it could be a heavy metal band, a soul band. One band called True Confessions were a kind of like a R&B band, but they had two strippers as well. It was like, <laughs> oh, my God, Christ. But I, I learned how to win an audience over. You know, I developed that pattern that I use uh, in lieu of a light show or dancers <laughs> to engage with the audience. I learned it there. I mean, like, for instance... I would go on stage and they'd, this was a time when they had uh, video jukeboxes and they would turn it down but I wouldn't turn it off. So while I was playing, I'm looking at in the corners of the screen with, for instance, Tears for Fears doing their funny dancing, you know, that, that, so those of a certain age who saw their videos. So I would start just taking the piss out. I'm just really trying to get the audience to relax and listen to my music. You know, I'd kind of just, just sort of learn that aspect of engaging with an audience to soften them up, to get them to relax so that I can whisper some interesting politics into their ear without them resisting, you know, without them bridling and running away. Yeah, not just interesting politics. Your first album was released in 1983 and there are some really heartfelt love songs on that album. Did that emotion, that vulnerability come easily to you in your songwriting? It was always a part of what I did. I think I needed it to leaven the politics. The currency of music is empathy. And when you write a song, you're, you're, you're trying to get the listener to feel some empathy for the person in the song. So if I'm writing a political song, that would be working it. But there's another part of the bargain in which you as the listener draw some empathy from the song yourself because it's about something that you feel. It's about a situation you found yourself in. And the vulnerable songs are doing that. You know, you can, you know, take Tank Park Salute. I think when I released it, my audience, who were then in their late 20s, early 30s, probably their parents were still alive, they reflected upon the idea of death of a parent. They thought about that. That's interesting. There's an interesting character. Now, of course, when I play it, they, they're, you know, they tear up now when I play it because they now have that experience. And so from 
giving the song some empathy, the characters some empathy, they now, they now draw empathy from it. There's something wonderful that a pop song can do that yours do right from the start too, which is just nakedness of emotion, like just I love you, repeated mm. again. Mm. And when you go and see a Billy Brown concert, all these blokes are singing I love at you the top of their voice, <laughs> at the yeah. top of their yeah. voices. But that was what, I think that always was the attraction of what I did, you know, is that balance between the softy and the, the hardcore politics. And my favourite songs are the ones where the two kind of grappling with each other, like Greetings to the New Brunette you know, relationships and politics. Those are the most interesting songs, I think. And I guess those examples where relationships will upend any of your good intentions or yep. ideological goals that's in, right, in yep. practice. Indeed. That's the reality of it. That is the reality. In the, it's New England. It's the, it's the quintessential aspect of New England. You know, I don't want to change the world. I'm just looking for another girl. You may be involved in the Titanic struggle, but let's be frank, everyone needs a cuddle. Why didn't I put that in? <laughs> Well, I should have song. put that in. I just suddenly <laughs> thought of that. But that's what it's saying, basically. You know, that's what song's playing. Of course I want to change the world. But every now and then you just need, you just need a hug. You've lived away from London for many years by the ocean in Dorset. It's an ancient place. Do you feel that deep time along the coast there? Well, of course, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, where, where I walk, it's very close to uh, the Dorset Ridgeway. On the Ridgeway there, Bronze Age burial mounds. Also, in that part of the world, the Iron Age people built defended homesteads on the hilltops. They would dig ditches and, and Maiden Castle, probably one of the biggest hill forts in Britain. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is that although they were built, you know, the Bronze Age, like over you know, 2,000 years ago, those things are still in my everyday. Whoever those people, I don't know what they were like, they may be as ethnically different to me as the Aboriginal Indigenous people are to you. But they, they were trying to make sense of this space and they still have that space. They held the space they have, they held, because it's still there, it's still visible. I walk past it every day. So I don't feel that far away from them. And I think that perhaps we've lost that a little bit in the, in the cities, but outside of the cities in the UK, you can still find that, that sort of, well, a sense of kind of, you know, stuff's been going on here for a long time. You know, we're not the first people trying to make sense of this landscape. So has living there changed your sense of what it is to be English and Englishness? Well, Englishness is a kind of like an intangible, isn't it, to try and to try and put your finger on. But fundamentally, I think it has to be about space rather than race. It has to be the space that we share together. So that includes Dorset, includes Barking, and yet, you know, we still have a, a huge amount in common, and we are, a, you know, a diverse people. And that diversity has always been our strength. You know, we English are famously Anglo-Saxons. That hyphen. That's who we are. You can't step away from that and try and suggest that we're, you know, we're, we're just one kind of thing. We, we've always benefited from our ability to assimilate people, ideas, music, you know, and that's, that's been a great strength. So I, I, think, I think the Englishness is, constantly changes, yet in somehow it remains the same. George Orwell kind of summed it up when he wrote in The Lion and the Unicorn, which is probably the best book written about not just Englishness but about national identity, he wrote about um, what does England... He was writing in 1940 during the Blitz. What does England of 1940 have in common with England of 1840? Well, what do you have in common with that three-year-old child in that photograph on your parents' mantelpiece? Nothing except that you're the same person. And I think that really, not just about England, but about any nation with any history, it's the same thing. It changes, but yet somehow the quintessential intangible being of it remains fundamentally the same. What did your mum think of the life you'd built for yourself? She wasn't really uh, 
She wasn't. I think she was more happy when I was in the army than when I was being Billy Bragg playing. Because she she always said, "Well, I never know where you are around the world. I never know what you're doing. Your brother, I know where he is. He comes home. He's a bricklayer, my brother. He comes home every night, and I can phone him up. But you, whenever I see a plane crash, I always wonder if you were there. So I can understand. I mean, as as the parent of a of a son who travels around the world, I I have a lot more sympathy with where she was coming from there. But she didn't really understand what I did. She would say things to me. Like, how are you making any money? You've not been... You've been sitting around here for weeks. And I'd be like, well, Mum, my record's in shops and people are buying them and, and you know, and kind of... Uh, it's in, and eventually someone... I must have said in an interview somewhere that my mum doesn't really understand what I do because Women's Hour on Radio 4 got me and my mum in to do a live interview. And the thing about parents who don't understand what their children do for a living, which I thought was great. Mum, we come up from Dorset. I brought my son and we went out for lunch. Mum loved it. We went in the studio, we sat down with Jenny Murray, we got chatting and chatting and chatting, and all of a sudden, in the context of the conversation, my mum just says, of course, you know, Jenny, he never comes to see me. <laughs> I'm like, oh. So I'm like, well, look, Jenny, this is the nub of the problem. Mum thinks I'm in London just to hang out. She doesn't understand that I'm actually here to work. She thinks I can just nip out to Barking willy-nilly, have a cup of tea with her, come and see my aunties, but actually... As you know, Jenny, I'm working. So Jenny Murray didn't really give me any leeway. And then they put it on bloody pick of the week. Your lovely mum passed away in 2011, like your dad, from cancer. How was the conversation around her diagnosis different than what had happened with your dad? A lot different. I mean, obviously, I was down in Dorset. I got a ring from my my mum's younger sister, who'd been with my mum at the hospital, and she she learned from the doctors that mum was terminally ill. So I kind of come straight up from Dorset went to the hospital and the first thing she said to me was, whatever the doctors say to you, you've got to tell me. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but if you're in pain, you've got to tell me, all right? That's the deal, the two of us, because we're the two who went through that together. We went through not talking about my dad's thing and we definitely didn't want to do that. And in that sense, I was very fortunate. I almost was going to say it was great. It wasn't great because mum passed away in about six weeks. But the conversations we were able to have about our life, about her hopes for what would happen with the house and for, you know, what she wanted to do. I mean, she chose all the all the music for her funeral. What did she choose for when her coffin came in? To she the chose church? Tank Park Salute, which is a bit tough for everybody. But it was good. It was really nice because, you know, she'd always given people the impression that she wasn't really into what I did, you know. She would... what wouldn't put me down, but she... You know, when, when I got given the... Um, I got given an honorary degree by the University of East London, the campus of which is in Barking. And she came to the uh, ceremony and she said to the, the, the dean who was giving it to me, why are you giving this to my son? And, and he said, well, Mrs Bragg, it's because he's from Barking. And she said, well, my other son's from Barking, can he have one? <laughs> so she kind of had that attitude. But in the end, in the end, when she said, she always referred to it as that song. I'm not even sure she knew what it was called, but she referred to it as that song. And she always insisted I played it when, I, when, I, when she came to see me. She'd come in the dressing room before. And say, so, are you going to play that song? And, he's, I'm going to play that. and then my nephews would come afterwards and say, why do you always play that song that makes Nan cry? And I'm like, mate, have a word with your Nan about it. So although she gave the impression that she... I, I think she just didn't want me getting big for my boots, you know, which is understandable. You know, she used to have, actually, she used to have my gold records on the wall at the house because I, I didn't know what else to do, so I used to send them to her. And my brother said, oh, it's terrible. People say, what are you, what are you doing? And Mum says, oh, he makes gold records. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> And then when she passed away, they were all in the cupboard under the stairs. So I took them back. They're in my lock-up now. But in the end, when she chose Tank Park Salute, I said to her, oh, Mum, I have enough trouble singing that, thinking about Dad, without thinking about you two. And she said, well, that's what I mean. And I'm like, yeah, OK, I get it. I get it. So, yeah, to me, it's not just about Dad anymore. It's, for everybody else, it is. But for me, I have that 
connection with it as well now. It's just a lovely, lovely connection between me and mum. It's been so lovely hearing some of your story, Billy. Thanks so much for being my guest. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sarah. Thank you. My guest on Conversations today was Billy Bragg. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now. Die-hard music fans. At the tender age of 52. (laughs) And a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore? 